Radio Mano Papachango. me again i'm just taking a a break from the writing actually i'm using you as an excuse you're my excuse to get away from thinking for a few minutes and uh also i I, i've got some emails that have um i've been wanting to address for a while and they're sort of languishing and and as you'll hear um they're the kind of emails that uh, i don't really want to ignore and uh, so I want to get back to them or get to them as, as soon as possible. So those things conspire. And uh, so here I am with a little uh, episode of what am I calling this? I guess this is a Roma. This is a ranting out my ass episode. Um, OK, so let's get right into it. Here's one that came in a while ago. Um, I'm going to there will be pauses as I read it because I want to make sure this person isn't identifiable this is from a dude um i guess he came across my work he saw my ted talk and uh anyway he says uh he's in his mid-30s he's been struggling with panic attacks and anxiety disorder since he was 12 years old uh i've always been a very clever and smart guy uh good grades in school good at playing music passionate about reading and very curious about the world every aspect of life nonetheless i've never been happy or serene in my life so far i've had many terrible moments when i was barely able to get out of the house i've always asked myself why why is this happening to me Why does my mind try to keep me isolated, to keep me alone? The more independence I gained, the more success I had, the more people I met, the more scared and anxious I became. So that's the framework. The guy's in his mid-30s. He's smart. He's he's passionate. He's interested in life. But the more successful he gets, the more he gets out into life, the more anxious he gets. So he um, went to psychotherapy for five years. Good. Um, And he says that what I started to understand recently is that maybe something I've never thought about before was starting to take shape in my mind and that this thing is a struggle with sexuality. I've always had girlfriends since, since I was 17. Uh, I've had uh, difficult relationships But the thought of being attracted by men has never touched my conscience. Um, Today, at 34, this feeling of being homosexual has taken over my entire mind and just blown it up. I spend sleepless nights asking myself, is that it? All these years of sorrow and pain just to discover that you're gay? It's not about liberation, unfortunately. It's more like being a different person from who I thought I was, and this is crushing my mind. I've always dreamt about a family with a woman and children. I've always tried to make my parents proud of me. 
And in many cases, they've seemed disappointed and not happy with the things I've done. Now the sexuality thing is huge, and I'm still not able to accept it. I tried, but it's causing me anger, frustration, and pain. The very thought of telling this to my parents drives me crazy because I think I'm going to give them the worst news I could ever give them. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's how I feel. I think you get my point. It's immensely hard for me, but I feel I'm getting to a point where I can't pretend to be anyone but who I am. Help if you can. Thanks from the depths of my wounded heart. I should add that this guy is writing from a part of the world that is not known for its tolerance to um, to homosexuality. So what you know, the reason I read these letters, I, I wrote back to this guy um, personally. Um, the reason I read these letters on the podcast is for the benefit of someone out there who might be going through the same sort of thing. And, um, you know, not not that the advice I give is necessarily going to be so wonderful, but just that they know that there are other people going through the same sorts of things. Um, you know, and th this is one of these things where people write to me, I think, knowing the sort of advice they can expect from me or the sort of response that they can expect from me. I used the phrase recently. I, I was talking with a friend. I said, I think we, how did I say this? I think we're attracted to the, to the lights that illuminate the path we've already decided to take. You know what I mean? I mean, we're attracted to the books or the authors or the, you know, we notice things in the world that, that support the struggle that we are in at the moment. And um, so I think that this guy wrote to me knowing that I'd be very supportive of him taking the step that he's afraid to take right now. Um, there's a, an old expression, it's easier to ride a horse in the direction it's going. You know, it's like that is the direction his life, his life is moving toward an acceptance of this. And um, I've been writing about shamanism recently on this manuscript. And one of the things about shamanism is that uh, you're called to shamanize. You're, you're called, I was writing about a book called Black Elk Speaks. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It's a beautiful, powerful, amazing book. Um, and a big part of that is this young man, Black Elks, has what we would call a psychotic break. He, he loses his shit. He thinks that um, the animals are talking to him. The, the clouds talk to him. He controls the weather with his mind. You know, um, things that modern doctors would call, uh, you know, delusional uh, episodes, psychotic episodes, hallucinations. But in a shamanic society, these are seen as evidence of uh, potential shaman, that you're being called to shamanize, that you have this ability to move between worlds. And like most talents, it's something that you can't control initially. It's just it's there and it controls you. And so the. Um, the the opportunity is for the community to come together and help this person learn to control this um, movement between worlds so that it can then be used as a, a tool of healing 
and di- divination and uh, insight. Similarly, um, society should really come together and support people who are going through these sorts of uh, transitions, whether it's coming to um, terms with their sexuality, gender identity, and what have you. And uh, we don't, of course, generally. Um, but maybe this is maybe this podcast and others like it and the communities that form around these sorts of things. Maybe this is our our shamanic tribal um, opportunity. So um, anyway, I wrote back to him. I'll read a little bit of what I wrote. I said, you're at a very important moment in your life. You've been in a cage for a long time and now the door is open. You need to decide if you're going to leave your cage and live your life free and as you are, or if you're going to stay in that cage, even though you know you could have left it if you'd wanted to. Of course, the only decision is to leave. You know that, which is why you've written to me. It'll be difficult for your parents, maybe impossible, but they gave you life and now you need to live it. Eventually, I hope and suspect that they'll realize that what makes them proud of you are qualities like your sincerity, kindness, intelligence, and importantly, courage. And all of these parts of you will only grow and be enhanced by you being true to yourself, whether that's straight, gay, bisexual, or whatever it is. That doesn't matter. Being true to yourself is what matters. A wise man once said his only advice was, quote, love and do as you please, unquote. He wasn't specific about what form that love should take or with whom. It's the love that matters. And to love yourself, you need to accept who you are and what shapes love takes in your own mind. What I didn't mention is that the wise man I'm quoting there is um, St. Augustine, who said some wise things but was a fucking hypocrite. He was also the guy who said, um, Lord, I'm paraphrasing, but the famous quote is, um, Lord, give me uh, chastity and, um, you know, help me resist temptation, women, wine, but not yet, which is a great line, (laughs) great line, uh, the problem is that when, you know, he was uh, a bit of a wild guy when he was young, he, um, I don't remember the, the the details, but I think he had a sexual relationship with um, a woman who worked in the household, like a maid or something that went on for quite a while. I think she got pregnant. And then when he found the Lord and joined the church, he abandoned her and and sent her away in shame and and poverty and misery. And then, um, you know, as St. Augustine, he uh, obviously before he became a saint, but he was a powerful figure in the early church and he was um, very judgmental and a part of the the sort of anti-sex, anti-gay, anti-everything that isn't pure and chaste movement within the church. So, um, yeah, I think love and do as you please is great advice for anyone. Uh, I wish St. Augustine had followed it for the rest of his life. But 
if you love, if you love, if you're open and you're honest and your, your intentions are as pure as you can make them. And by the way, pure does not preclude erotic. So let's get that straight. Uh, when I say pure, I just mean no hidden agendas that you're not out to hurt somebody that you're not twisted up and fucked up inside. Um, which you will be if you don't, if you aren't straight with who you are. And obviously no pun intended with that straight there. Um, if you're not clear and honest and transparent about what you're doing, I'll read a little bit from the manuscript here on this question of sexual repression. I'm writing about uh, teenagers and the way children are raised. And I get into this section here <clears throat> about uh, teenage sexuality and uh, talking about myself. Uh, all right, let's see. I'll pick it up here. The other reason I was angry, to be honest, is that I was acutely aware that my burgeoning sexual awareness, which felt like a potential new source of magic and mystery, um, was instead quickly becoming a source of frustration, shame, and confusion. As the hormonal surge swept through me, the possibility of exploring this new world with a girl or a woman seemed increasingly urgent and yet increasingly unlikely. It seemed deeply wrong that my body, more than my body, my very essence, should be demanding something so urgently, whether it was sex, love, intimacy, or simply touch, while the practical, practical conditions of my life made the chances of finding whatever it was I needed about as likely as my suddenly becoming captain of the football team. I didn't play football. We laugh at the sexual, sexual frustrations of testosterone-addled, pimply-faced, braces-wearing geeks like I was because, well, it's a laughable situation. But the pain is real, and the intense frustration experienced by young men who feel they're being denied something they need urgently is a potentially explosive force. It's a force that can and does lead to rape, murder, and war, which are never more than a shout away. Um, and then I get into, uh, I talk about jihad, I talk about mass shootings in the U.S. and how these are almost always carried out by young, sexually frustrated men. And then I talk uh, about a female-to-male transsexual who did an interview on This American Life. Um, and she talks about, or sorry, he talks about how it felt to start taking testosterone and begin this, this transition and, and feel the hormonal change that the testosterone brought about. This is a quote from her. She says, the most overwhelming feeling is the incredible increase in libido and the change in the way I perceived women and the way I thought about sex. Before testosterone, I'd see a woman in the subway and I'd think, well, she's attractive. I'd like to meet her. What's that book she's reading? Ah, I could talk to her. That's what I would say in my head. There would be a narrative. There would be this stream of language. It would all be very verbal. But after testosterone, there was no narrative. 
there was no language at all. It was just, I would see a woman who was attractive or not attractive. That was enough to basically just flood my mind with aggressive pornographic images, just one after another. It was like being in a pornographic movie house in my mind, and I couldn't turn it off. I could not turn it off. Everything I looked at, everything I touched turned to sex. She says... She felt like a monster a lot of the time, but she gained a great deal of compassion for men and boys. Quote, it made me understand adolescent boys a lot, she said. And then she talks about walking up Fifth Avenue. She says, there was a woman walking in front of me and she was wearing this little skirt and this little top. And I was looking at her ass and I kept saying to myself, don't look at it. Don't look at it. And I kept looking at it and I walked past her and this voice in my head kept saying, turn around, check out her breasts, turn around, turn around, turn around. And my feminist female background kept saying, don't you dare, you pig. Don't turn around. And I fought myself for a whole block. And then I turned around and checked her out. Of course you did, because you're becoming a man or a boy, an adolescent boy in that case. It's hard. It's hard. And the, the frustration <clears throat> that's generated by this conflict between what people are feeling and what they're allowed to express or even allowed to admit to themselves that they're feeling is dangerous. When I go on to talk about the way this, this um, twisted repressed sexuality can manifest in society. And one of those ways is jihad. Um, another one of those ways is mass shootings in the U S Another way is a sort of pathological obsession with money and success and power. All these things that are um, deflections of, of a healthy erotic energy when it's not allowed to be expressed properly. It, uh, it will be expressed, but it'll be expressed in, in very unhealthy ways. So the whole child rape thing in the church is a classic example, a tragic, centuries-long example of what happens when you cut off access to, uh, to natural, healthy expression of that energy. Um, okay, let's go to uh, the next email this is from a young guy a uh, big fan especially of the toma episodes oh yeah i get those reminders a lot what the fuck the fuck the fuck's up fuck's up what's up with that i'm sorry when the book's done i'll get to a whole bunch of them in a row um i think i left we were in Pushkar when i did the last one of those so the next one is in jizelmare and uh, i'll tell you it involves camels a full moon and mace it's a good one. Um, but anyway, uh, let's see. Da, da, da. He's got a girlfriend. They've been together about two years. They're both 21. Uh, and they've only had sex with each other. Uh, the relationship is wonderful. We're supportive. We compliment each other. No jealousy issues. We handle our disagreements really well. It's a near-perfect relationship with only one big problem looming over it. Are we really going to live our entire lives only experiencing sex with each other? I guess they're going away to college now, uh, undergrad. He doesn't say if they're going to the same school or not. But um, apparently this is an issue. So 
<clears throat> Recently, we've been discussing the idea of opening our relationship up sexually. We both get turned on by the idea of the other person exploring with other people, and we logically believe sex shouldn't be limited the way our society tells us it should. That being said, it's tough to ignore all the emotion that goes along with allowing a partner to be involved with others. And it's very tricky to predict how either of us will react once this fantasy becomes a reality. So my question for you is, how do we decide if polyamory or whatever is right for us? Are there any baby steps we can take to ease our way into this? Uh, okay, this is, this is interesting. First thing I want to say is there are a lot of things about this email that make me feel really good about this relationship. Um, the way he, you know, a lot of people say, oh, I love, I love my partner so much. We have a great relationship. Well, the fact that you love him so much doesn't really say you have a great relationship. The thing that says you have a great relationship are things like we're supportive, complement each other and handle our disagreements very well. That tells me that these people do have a, a mature relationship, a sense of what makes a good relationship, because handling disagreements really well is a big part of it. Um, so it sounds like they do have a solid relationship. It's not just one of these things where, you know, they were each other's first and now they're afraid to, um, to explore. Um, the, the fact that they both get turned on by the idea of the other person, that's really important. It's the other person being with others. It's not just that, you know, one of them is feeling restless and the other is sort of willing to try to put up with it in order to keep their relationship. It's not that kind of, uh, I'll, you know, self-sacrifice kind of thing. They're both actually erotically turned on by it. That's important. That's interesting. The reason it's interesting is that it, it sounds to me like what you're trying to do is have your cake and eat it too, which is, you know, I've got good news for you in sexuality. You can actually do that probably. Um, you're trying to maintain this very important, very intimate relationship that you two have, and yet also uh, allow the opportunity for you to have sex with other people. And the fact that you both get turned on by the idea tells me that that's a possibility for you. So, <clears throat> okay, uh, how do you do it? Baby steps. I would say the first baby step is to make this part of your intimacy make this part of the thing that you have with each other at least initially maybe later you'll feel that you um the one or both of you want to have a separate sort of area a private area that you don't necessarily share with each other but at least initially i would say that it's really important that this be something that you guys do together, that even if it never happens, the exploration of it, the, the fantasy of it, which you've already shared, obviously, that's the road you want to go down. So uh, you're walking down the street and you see a guy who you think is kind of uh, attractive and good looking. And maybe you say to her, hey, is, would you do that guy? You know, what do you think about him? And then, you know, and hopefully she feels comfortable enough to tell you like, Oh God damn, I would fuck that dude. Or no, he's not my type. Cause like, look at this. And you know, I get this energy from him or whatever. Explore, 
explore th- what attracts you guys about other people. Take the sting out of that. Take the sting out of the fact that she's attracted to other men and that you're going to be attracted to other women. Talk about that. Get that out in the open. You know, let it air out a little bit. Let it let it lose that sort of the danger that lurks in darkness. So that's that's one way, one baby step to take. Make it something you can talk about easily and openly and get used to not being threatened by the idea of her attraction to other men and let her get used to the idea of not being threatened by your attraction to other women and get used to the idea that it's not about you, that whatever she feels about that guy, whatever response she has to a guy who walks past your table in the cafe, it's not about you. It's about her. And what she's got with you is unique and important and that none of this, what you're doing together, should be framed as in any way a threat to what you have, a threat to what's most important to you, to both of you. The other thing you want to do is... um, You know, if you do talk about going into this in a more concrete way to think about, like, what are the rules? What what are you comfortable with? What's she comfortable with? Work that stuff out and learn to trust each other. Like maybe maybe she wants to go on a date with a with a guy and okay, you're you're okay with it. But honestly, it just freaks you out to think about her having sex with him. So. The two of you agree, like, uh, if it goes well and she feels like it, she'll make out with him a little bit, but she won't have sex. And then be very specific about what sex means, right? Um, Because maybe you think it means one thing and she thinks it means something else. But be specific about that and then let her go on the date and let her come back and and talk about it and, and see how it feels. See, you know, did she kiss him? What did that feel like? What's it feel like for you to, to listen to her? tell you that you know there's no need to just jump into this the other thing you might want to do is watch porn together and talk about it think you know have that sexual experience of watching porn be something that the two of you do together and talk about what turns her on what turns you on what turns you off what turns her off you know why Mm, explore things together get used to being in that realm together I think those are the main things that come to mind for me as uh, a way to sort of take baby steps into this. And honestly, uh, I think you guys are going to do great, even if the relationship doesn't last a lifetime as the romance that it is now. Uh, I'm sure it'll last a lifetime in other forms. I'm just going to jump in here real quickly. This is an interruption, not a commercial interruption, but a technical interruption to tell you that somehow at this point in the recording, I fucked up something. I'm still not sure what it was. And the program started recording not from the microphone in my hand right now that was still in my hand, but from the computer's microphone. So you will hear my voice become distant and kind of weird. It's still perfectly audible so i'm not going to re-record it because you know these things are like the finest jazz musicians just uh you know riffing i couldn't remember what i said and you know i'm not reading from anything so 
Uh, I'm going to leave it in there, but I just wanted to let you know there's nothing wrong with your computer or your headphones or your brain. My voice has changed. It's me. It's not you, baby. Everything's just fine with you. And then uh, it switches back to the this mic a little later. So don't be freaked out. Those of you who are tripping on acid while you listen to this, do not be freaked out. There's nothing wrong with your brain. Thank you. We now return to regularly scheduled programming. Okay, the last message I'm going to talk about, and and honestly, it just came in recently, and it's the message that spurred me into recording this um, this this podcast today because it's fucking heartbreaker. Um, Okay, my girlfriend and I have been together for over six years. We're both in our early 30s. We have a child together. Um, about a year ago, my girlfriend went out of town for a weekend with some friends. Uh, they ended up inviting some guys back to their place. My girlfriend went to sleep alone while one of the guys hooked up with a friend of hers. After falling asleep, my girlfriend awoke um, being raped. Due to the effects of uh, previous abusive relationships, she couldn't fight back or scream. Her survival method was to zone out and just wait till it was over. Uh, she'd apparently had uh, difficult relationships as a teenager, and that was how she dealt with it. Uh, shortly after the, the two men left, um, they were intoxicated. Uh, she didn't go to the police because it would just be a mess, she felt, because they had been drinking and they didn't know the guy's names and they didn't have any way to identify them. Um, so he says this leaves us with no chance for real closure, only an open wound that has been a big um has done big damage to our relationship. He says the girlfriend is in therapy. She's been slowly building herself back up. Um, but it's tough. It takes her all her energy to get through the day. She's still a great mom. She's got a new job. I admire her strength and resilience. On the other hand, she says she hates all men and has lost all desire for any sexual contact. She hasn't slept a whole night since the attack. We kiss and snuggle, but uh, we haven't had sex since that happened, and her libido is completely gone. I know she's the victim of this situation, but the consequences uh, have affected me too. I feel myself angry often. Um, I'm more um, vulnerable to my addictions, which are mostly food and porn. Uh, I feel depressed and incredibly sad a lot. I try not to show it to her and the child, but occasionally I can't keep it together and it comes out. I feel inadequate as a parent and a partner and all I can think of are ways to murder this fucker who haunts the darkest parts of my conscience. Uh, I usually am an easygoing, careless, happy person with lots of kindness and love, but this has been really hard on both of us. Again, I'm not comparing my pain to hers. I guess my question is, how do we proceed from here? I know time heals, and I've also seen a therapist on occasion, but the pain and depression seem to lie dormant all the time. 
Also, how can we get our sex life back? Is there a gentle way to return to what we had without being pushy or recreating the trauma? Okay. Uh, oh, and then he says, I respect your opinion and uh, your show. Your podcast is an important part of my week, even though you can be a bit cranky sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thanks. All right. So, again, I'm not acting as a, as a psychotherapist here. I'm not claiming that I have any special ability to, um, you know, to give advice or to heal through the internet or anything. So all I can tell you are things that this comes to mind, that this brings to mind for me. Uh, the first thing is, and, and again, largely because I've, of what I've been writing recently, I've been writing about um, the use of uh, psychedelics and, and in uh, psychotherapy. And MDMA is an incredible tool for psychotherapy that is um, aimed at treating PTSD. And clearly what your girlfriend is going through and, and also what you're going through um, is, if not straight up PTSD, very much related to it. I wish that, I don't know what country you live in, I don't know where you are in the world, um, but it's very unlikely that MDMA is legal um, for psychotherapy in your country. I know it's being, it's approved for um, the research in some areas, but it's very limited still. But that's a tragedy because MDMA, also known as ecstasy or molly, for those of you who don't know, is what it does is it reduces the sort of defense mechanisms, the psychological defense mechanisms. So uh, it's extremely useful in PTSD because what you're trying to do in therapy treating PTSD is, is exactly what the writer of this letter referred to. He said, how can we get our sex life back on track without, you know, forcing her to go through the trauma again? What you're trying to do in psychotherapy, dealing with stuff like this, is you're you want the the person to go through the experience again, but you want them to do it in a setting psychologically and also physically where they feel safe, where they feel a sense of power and control because the principal source of trauma in a case like this is the lack of control that the person feels. And I, all right, I'm going to say things that could get me in all sorts of trouble. So please, anyone who's listening to this, please, even if you disagree with me, understand that I'm coming from a place of compassion. And, and I know I'm a white man. I've never been raped. I know I'm probably totally full of shit. So all I'm doing is giving my opinions and sharing my thoughts on this. Um, and I don't mean to minimize anyone's suffering or, or hurt anyone in any way. Um, and I guess that's a trigger warning. Okay. If, if you're going to be triggered by a discussion of rape, this is a good time to, to stop listening. But rape, like so many other things, particularly things related to sexuality is a culturally defined experience. Now it sounds like in this woman's case, there was no physical trauma. Um, 
he said that the man was choking her. So, okay, that, depending how severe that was, that could be a physical trauma. But hopefully there was no physical trauma, that her body wasn't traumatized. So what we're dealing with here is her mind being traumatized, her personality, her sexuality, her non-physical self was traumatized. And that's the, the main source of that is the feeling of vulnerability and lack of control over what's happening to her. And so in psychotherapy, what, what you're trying to do is bring the person to a, a state of mind where they're so comfortable with you, they trust you so much, they feel so safe in that space, in the office, the, you know, the light is good, the, 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 just they feel comfortable and safe and protected there, that they can re-experience whatever it was that traumatized them, if it's a car accident or a rape or seeing someone die or watching a bomb go off in a city with lots of soldiers returning vets or suffering from PTSD from things they've seen. The PTSD is, is the, the, the mind constantly fighting not to re-experience that. And yet, because you fight not to re-experience it, of course it keeps coming up. It keeps popping up. That's why they have flashbacks. That's why they have nightmares. That's why these visions, that's why they hear a noise and it reminds them of that scene, that moment. Because the psyche wants to re-experience it. The psyche needs to go back and look at it again. It's like a it's like a splinter that's stuck in you and you can't heal until you get it out. But every part of you is saying, no, I don't want to touch it. Every time I touch it, it hurts so bad. Every time I even think about it, it hurts so bad. So I'm just trying to distract myself from it. Okay, that's understandable, but you're not going to heal till you remove it. You're not going to heal till you confront it and, re and you, you touch it, you look at it, you cut it open and get that shit out. Right? That's what healing is, whether it's, whether it's in an emergency room or in a therapy room. All you're trying to do as the, the clinician or the healer or the shaman or whatever it is, is you're, you are trying to remove whatever foreign material is in the wound. And then you close the wound. So if it, let's say it's, you know, it's a physical wound, someone has a bike accident and they've got a gash on their thigh. What you do as a doctor is you clean it. The first thing you do is you clean it, you get everything out of there, you get the dirt out, the rocks, the whatever you, whatever's in there, you get it out of there. And then you close the wound and you disinfect it and you cover it, you put in stitches or whatever you do, and then you let you let the body heal. You can't force healing. You have to let you have to create the situation in which healing takes place. That's all you can do. It's like education. You can't force somebody to learn something. All you can do is create an environment in which learning is possible. And people are natural learners. Kids want to learn. Right? Kids, there's, there's, no, there's no intelligent being alive, whether it's a puppy or a kitten or a kid, that doesn't want to learn how the world works. It's natural. It's, it's like wanting to eat. It's wanting to grow. It's wanting to move. It's wanting to play. You want to learn. Similarly, the body wants to heal. The mind wants to heal. 
So all we can do and, and the best we can do is to create a space in which that healing can happen and in which we've removed obstructions to that healing. So, you know, when you're dealing with PTSD, what you're trying to do is help the person stop running away from the experience that, um, that caused the trauma and stop and turn and face the dragon. And MDMA is incredibly useful in that because it reduces that panic, that, um, that fear, and it increases the sense of trust and, um, and, uh, what's the, what's the word like that, the sort of being together with the therapist, the trust and the like, okay, we're, we're together and I know you're going to protect me and all that. So I wish I could say, go find a therapist that uses MDMA in their practice and, you know, uh, either especially a few sessions for her and uh, it sounds like he needs a few sessions you as well and maybe the two of you together because the problem is now a lot of there's a lot of stuff between you there there are several wounds here there's her wound there's your wound and there's the wound that you know cut right between the two of you and they all need to be addressed and they all need to be addressed the same way with compassion by removing whatever foreign material, whatever misunderstandings, whatever unresolved issues that she might have with you, that you have with her, that you have with this this guy, whoever he is, that you'll never know. Um, these things all need to be removed as best they can and then uh, allow healing to take place. Um, it reminds me, there's a story I heard a long time ago. It's one of those Zen stories you'll hear a lot if you hang out with Buddhists. Um, two monks, there's a young monk and an old monk, and they're walking along and on some country road, and they, they come to a point where there's this woman standing there. There's a big mud puddle across the road, and there's this woman standing there, and she's just really angry and complaining that there's this puddle, and she can't, she doesn't want to get muddy. She doesn't want to cross it, and oh, it's just a really uh, disagreeable person, and the young monk just walks by and walks through the puddle to the other side, and he turns, and the old monk has stopped, and the old monk picks up the woman and carries her across the puddle, and then puts her down on the other side, and the two monks keep walking, and and the woman doesn't even thank him. She just keeps complaining, just complete pain in the ass. And so they're walking along and the young monk's like, Jesus, I don't what, what a bitch. I mean, gee, you know, blah, blah, blah. This woman just never shut up. And she's like, Ugh. and they keep going and the old monk doesn't say much. And finally, an hour later, they're still walking and the young monk's still like, really like pissed off. I can't believe that woman. She didn't even thank you. And how long was she standing there? She could have just walked around. She could have gotten a stick. And finally, the young monk says to the old monk, why did you why did you pick her up anyway? I mean, gee, what a pain in the ass. And the old monk says, well, I only carried her for 10 seconds. You ca you've been carrying her for an hour. Right. I put her down a long time ago. When are you going to put her down? So I guess the, the point of the story is about letting go. And I know what I'm saying is one of those things that's easy to say and very, very hard to do. 
but you need to find a way to let go. And so does she. That's what needs to happen. There's never going to be revenge. There's never going to be going back to the way it was before. Um, but you need to find a way to let it go. And the best way that I know of is through therapy. And the best therapy I know of for a case like this involves MDMA. But if you can't, if, if that's not a possibility, then, um, and also anytime I talk about MDMA, I really need to be careful because I'm not talking about something you buy at a club. Um, you need to be very careful about what's being sold as ecstasy or molly or whatever, because a lot of nasty shit is mixed into that. It's actually pretty expensive to make. So, uh, it, it behooves the criminal enterprises that make the stuff to mix a bunch of bullshit into it. So rarely when there's testing done of, of what's being sold as molly or ecstasy at uh, festivals and all that, rarely is it pure. It's normally mixed in with other shit and a lot of it's not good shit. So, I'm not advocating going out to some, you know, bar and buying what's called ecstasy. I'm talking about the real thing here. Um, there are in Europe, there are organizations that do testing. So if any of you happen to buy something, uh, sometimes even at the festival or in the club, there will be a desk set up in the corner where, the, where they will do, uh, they'll shave off a little bit of a pill and they'll test it and tell you what's in it. Um, but there are other organizations where you can send in a sample and they'll tell you how pure it is. So there are ways around it, but, you know, uh, that's in, in Europe. I don't, in the U.S., I don't think that's available. In any case, uh, the thing about rape is that it is a culturally defined experience. And this is where I'm going to say things that could get me, could, could upset a lot of people. I, I really hope I don't come across as insensitive here, but rape is culturally defined. Um, now, there are some cases of rape where any culture anywhere would agree that that's rape. There are other cases, however, where um, a lot of cultures have very different views. For example, I was just reading this morning about somebody sent me this um article about a teacher in Oklahoma or something's 27 years old, I think. And she was caught having sex with a 15 year old male student of hers in a Best Western hotel. Uh, the kid was visiting his grandmother outside of town. And apparently she drove to the town and got a room in this motel. And then the kid you know, snuck out of the grandparents' house and jumped the fence and, you know, came up to the room and somehow they got caught and the cops were called and, you know. So now she's lost her job. She's charged with, um, you know, sexual battery, rape, um, enticing a child, all, all sorts of stuff. Okay, she's 27, he's 15. Mm, you know, is that rape? Uh, in American society, they say it is. And, and people will say, oh, well, what if the roles were reversed? What if that was a man, older man, younger girl? Okay, I don't know. But I know a 15-year-old boy and a 15-year-old girl are two different things. 
Um, I also know that not all 15-year-old boys are the same. For some 15-year-old boys, that could have been traumatic. For other 15-year-old boys, that could have been the best night of their lives. I was the latter kind of 15-year-old boy. So where I'm coming from, uh, I remember being 15 and the idea that I could, like, go hang out in a Best Western with my 27-year-old teacher, um, that would have been fantastic. And uh, not to, you know, get anyone in any trouble, but I had some experiences like that, and I look back at them as fantastic experiences. So I felt privileged at the time, and I look back on it, and I still feel privileged by it. I, I think... Um, the effects were 100% positive in my life. So I look at something like that and I say, yeah, she's stupid. Yeah, she's dumb, this 27-year-old woman, but a lot of 27-year-old people are dumb, including myself. And uh, I don't see rape there. Um, other people do, including the government and this kid's parents probably. But I look at that situation and I see trauma happening now. I see trauma starting, serious trauma starting when the cops knocked on the door. I see trauma through the public humiliation of this kid, through the freak out of his family, through the, the firing of this woman, through uh, a situation that as far as I know or anyone knows was possibly just really affectionate and wonderful and erotic and the two of them were having fun together and suddenly it's turned into this horrible criminal public humiliation that's to me that's the rape that's where the rape happens not in the room with the two of them alone it's when the cops and everybody else got involved and there, as it happens, there's some scientific support for this view. Um, I don't have the link right now, but I, I remember reading research about kids who had been sexually fondled. So we're not talking about brutal, horrible rape scenes here. We're talking about kids who were touched inappropriately by adults. And the research focused on um, the nature of the psychological trauma to the kids. And what it found was that the kids really weren't hurt by the experience until it was uncovered and became this big freak out. So in other words, you know, you know, Uncle Bobby touched your dick when you were seven years old and okay, we all look at that and say, well, Uncle Bobby shouldn't have done that. Uncle Bobby's fucked up. But if it just sort of ends there, we're like, hey, Uncle Bobby, you know, stay away from Uncle Bobby. He's got some problems and that's it. The kid doesn't really show a lot of psychological damage from the experience. Whereas if it's like, oh, my God, call the police and then Uncle Bobby gets hauled away in handcuffs and then there's a trial and the kid has to testify and the parents are crying and freaking out and everybody's freaking out. Oh, my God, I can't believe Uncle Bobby touched his dick. Oh, my God. That's where the kid gets really fucked up. That's where it becomes a big part of his life. That's where it becomes something that shapes him forever. Right? Not 
yeah, stay away from Uncle Bobby. He's, he's a little weird. That doesn't fuck the kid up. That's just like, okay, stay away from Uncle Bobby. It's when it becomes a big fucking deal that the kid gets fucked up. Now, again, I'm not talking about a situation where the trauma is physical, right? And then necessarily psychological because of the pain, because of the humiliation, because of the, you know, whatever. I'm talking about something that could go either way. I'm talking about something that could be a big deal or not a big deal, depending upon how you deal with it, depending on how the culture defines it. Now, an example, a, a very interesting example of this is an article, um, let's see, I, it was in a, it's in a, it's in a journal, Journal of Women and, Journal of Women in Culture and Society, uh, which is a, um, I think it's a feminist anthropology journal. And the article is called, It's Only a Penis, Rape, Feminism, and Difference, written by Christine Helliwell, H-E-L-L-I-W-E-L-L. -E <clears throat> I downloaded the PDF. It's online. So if you just, uh, if you Google, it's only a penis in quotation marks, you'll find this article. Let me read you a little bit about this. Uh, a little bit from the paper. In 1985 and 86, I carried out anthropological field work in the Dayak community uh, in Indonesian Borneo. One night in September, a man of the village climbed through a window into a house where a widow was living with her elderly mother, younger sister, and children. The widow awoke in darkness to feel the man inside her mosquito net gripping her shoulder while he climbed under the blanket that covered her and her youngest child as they slept. He was whispering, be quiet, be quiet. She responded by sitting up in bed and pushing him so violently that he stumbled backward, became entangled in her mosquito net, and then, finally free, fled across the floor and through the window. In the meantime, the woman climbed from her bed and pursued him, shouting his name several times. He hurried, his hurried exit through the window with his clothes now in considerable disarray was accompanied by a stream of abuse from the woman and by excited interrogation from wakened neighbors in the adjoining houses. Okay. So this guy crawls through the window. She wakes up. He's in bed with her, telling her to be quiet. Now, we would look at this and say, oh, this is an attempted rape in progress, right? Pretty clearly. Luckily, the woman woke up and, you know, pushed him, freaked him out, and he fled. But she knew who it was. Okay. So this anthropologist awoke the following morning, hearing laughter in the veranda outside my apartment where a group of elderly women had gathered regularly to uh, pound rice. They were recounting this tale loudly and with enormous enjoyment. I came out the door and uh, one of the women was mimicking the man climbing out the window, his, his pants falling down, his genitals askew. <laughs> the others were working nearby, were laughing and shrieking. Uh, when I was told the story, I was shocked and appalled. An unknown man had tried to climb into the bed of a woman in the dead dark of night. I knew what this was called, attempted rape. The woman had seen the man, recognized him. I knew what he deserved, the full weight of the law. My own fears about being a single woman alone in a strange place uh, came to the surface. My feminist sentiments poured out. How can I laugh? I asked these women. This is a very bad thing he's tried to do. But my outrage simply made them laugh harder. No, not bad, said one of the women, simply stupid. Hmm. 
I felt vindicated two hours later when the woman herself came out to have some breakfast. Her anger was palpable, and she shouted for all to hear her determination to exact a compensation payment from that man. Thinking to obtain information about local women's responses to rape, I began to question her. I asked her if she'd been frightened. Of course she had. Who wouldn't be frightened if I awoke to find a man like this? Wouldn't I be angry? Why then, I asked, hadn't she taken the opportunity to kick him harder or to hit him with one of the many wooden implements near her bed? She looked shocked. Why would I do that, she asked. After all, he hadn't hurt me. No, I said, but he wanted to. She looked at me with puzzlement. Not able to find a word for rape in my vocabulary, I tried to explain myself. I said, but he was trying to have sex with you, even though you didn't want him to. He was trying to hurt you. She now looked at me more with pity than with puzzlement, although both were mixed together in her expression. Christina, she said, it's only a penis. How can a penis hurt anyone? Now, this article goes on to talk about how rape is defined in different societies. And it's very interesting because, you know, this is one of these things that we think we know what it is. But we don't. We don't know what it is until we define it. It's like homosexuality. In the same part of the world where she is in, in Papua New Guinea, um, there are societies that believe that semen contains the essence of masculinity. So um, women don't give blowjobs because they don't want to turn into men. Um, but I'll tell you who does give blowjobs is adolescent boys who want to grow up to be the most masculine men possible. The ones, the ones who are going to be great soldiers and macho, macho men, right? So they suck a lot of dick because they want to get as much of that semen as they can so that then they'll be the most macho men. Now, is that homosexuality? We think we know what homosexuality is. Uh, and apparently sucking dick, uh, a man sucking a dick is part of being homosexual, right? A big part of it, potentially. And yet, in that culture, that's not seen as homosexuality at all. That's seen, on the contrary, as an integral part of heterosexuality, or I don't know if they even have those two different terms there, but it's seen as an integral part as normal, standard male development. And so rape is another one of those things where, you know, as I said, of course there are cases where it's indisputable, but something like unwanted sexual contact, it's hard to say what that is. You have to understand the culture. You have to understand the person, right? Some individual people would probably view something, you know, like there's this question of whether husbands can rape wives, and, and of course they can if it's violent and horrible and all that, but in the law, in some places, it's still not considered even possible um, because there's a sort of an assumption of consent upon getting married. And 
you know, what is rape? If someone has sex with you when you're, as a woman, if, if you have sexual contact with someone when you're sleeping, let's say, okay, a lot of people would say, well, of course that's rape because she couldn't have given consent. Well, what if she happened to, what if the guy knows her really well and one of her big sexual turn-ons is to uh, be made love to when she's asleep? What if what if she said that? Is it still rape? Um, that's hard to say, isn't it? Because she's already said that that she likes that idea, and not just as a fantasy, but as a reality. I'll read a little bit more from this this article. It's fascinating. Um, she's talking about the, um, the definition of how genders are defined in this society. The gerai, she says. <clears throat> Um, it's important to note that while men's bravery is linked to a notion of their greater physical strength, it's not equated with aggression. Aggression is not valued in most Jirai contexts. As a local man put it to me, the wise man is the one who fights when he has to and runs away when he can. Such avoidance of violence does not mark a man as lacking in bravery. While it's recognized that a man will sometimes need to fight, and skill and courage in fighting are valued, aggression and hot-headedness are ridiculed as the hallmarks of a lazy and incompetent man. In fact, physical violence between adults is very uncommon, and all of the cases that I did witness or hear about were extremely mild. Doubtless, <clears throat> the absence of rape in the community is linked to this devaluing of aggression in general. However, Unlike a range of other forms of violence, slapping, punching, beating with an implement, knifing, etc., rape is not named as an offense and accorded a punishment under traditional Jirai law. In addition, unlike these other forms of violence, rape is something that people in the community find almost impossible to comprehend. One woman asked me after I struggled to explain the concept of putting of a man attempting to put his penis inside her against her will. She asked me, how would he be able to do such a thing? Clearly, then, more is involved in the absence of rape in Jirai than a simple absence of violence in general. The author talks about the, the different conceptions of genitalia, which are very interesting. She says, in the Jirai context, the penis or male genitalia in general is not admired, feared, or envied. In fact, Jirai people see the men's sexual organs as being more vulnerable than women's for the simple reason that they are outside the body, while women's are inside. This reflects the Jirai understanding of inside as representing safety and belonging, while outside is a place of strangers and danger and is linked to the notion of men as being braver than women. In general, Jirai people say, because the penis is taken into another body, it is theoretically at greater risk during the sexual act than the vagina. This contrasts quite markedly with Western understandings, where women's sexual organs are constantly depicted as being more vulnerable during the sexual act, as liable to be hurt, despoiled, and so on. In Jirai, a penis is only a penis, uh, and this is neither a marker of dimorphism between men and women in general, nor in, in, in essence any different from a vagina. It turns out that the case she was looking at, after she talks about how in this culture it's incomprehensible to the people that sex could happen without consent, because 
they don't see women as being any less, um, well, I'll just read from it here. She says, the dry have no fear of coerced sexual intercourse um, because in the dry context, women's sexuality and bodies are no less aggressive and no more vulnerable than men's are. So this idea that men sexually are the aggressor, that the penis is this, you know, strong missile kind of, you know, military invading, attacking kind of thing doesn't apply in their culture. In fact, in their culture, they see it as being more vulnerable. Um, and then returning to the case, it, it turns out that uh, this man had given her some gifts, which she had accepted, which in that culture is sort of a tacit um, understanding that they're probably going to have sex, or at least that's how he saw it. So he came into the room thinking that uh, they'd already sort of um, set it up. And her freaking out was not saying, you know, rapist, get out of my room. Her freaking out was saying, wait, you know, wait, do you think I'm going to fuck you just because you gave me some soap? That No, that's not you know, we need to talk about this more. So she wasn't saying like, I'm not going to have sex with you. What she was saying was, uh, we haven't, you think we've got a deal, but we don't really have a deal yet, buddy. Um, anyway, in the end, the author says, in order to understand the practice of rape in countries in the West, uh, feminists, must begin to relinquish some of our most ingrained presumptions concerning the difference between men and women, and in particular concerning men's genitalia and sexuality as inherently brutalizing and penetrative, and women's genitalia and sexuality as being inherently vulnerable and subject to brutalization. Instead, we must begin to explore the ways rape itself produces such experiences of masculinity and femininity, and so inscribes sexual differences onto our bodies. All right. I don't know what the fuck is going on with this program. It seems to, every time I pause, it seems to default to my computer's microphone rather than the microphone I'm speaking into right now. So I apologize for the change in the sound quality. That's all me. There's nothing wrong with your, whatever you're using to listen to this, your phone or your computer or whatever. So circling around back to the, the email that started this whole conversation or discussion, I guess. Um, I guess the reason I, I raise all this and the reason all this comes to mind is that we can't control what happens to us in life and what's happened to you and uh, you, I mean you and your girlfriend, if you're listening to this and to your child, by the way, is something that can't be controlled, but to a large extent, you can control how you define it. You can control how you respond to it, how you, what kind of space you give it in your life. And again, I know what I'm saying is easy to say, but I still think it's true. And I hope that if I were in your position, and by the way, I kind of have been in your position without um, betraying anyone's trust, but I have been involved with women who've had similar experiences. I think the best 
of the bad options that you have before you are um, to make sure she's okay, first of all. And it sounds like she's taking actions to do that. She's in therapy, and I hope her therapist is, is helping and not you know, not making this a bigger problem in her psyche than it needs to be. Um, you know, because it's one of these weird things where like sometimes the problem, I read something on the last podcast I did where I was talking about uh, happiness and how in the West where, you know, we're taught that we should be happy all the time. Then sometimes when we're unhappy, we get even more unhappy because we feel like failures because we're unhappy and we should be happy. So like it, it, it feeds on itself. It becomes a spiral. And I think in cases like this, a similar kind of dynamic can happen where, I mean, maybe she's not as traumatized by it as she thinks she should be. And then that becomes the source of the trauma. You see what I mean? That, Maybe on some level, part of her is like, well, you know, it's not that different from what happened as a teenager and I survived that and it's not that big a deal, but my boyfriend's really freaking out about it. And now it's, you know, it's introduced this mess into our relationship because he's always freaking out about it and he's always reminding me of it. And now I feel terrible because like if I told him that it really wasn't that big a deal, he'd he'd lose all respect for me and, and I'm losing respect for myself because I know it should be bothering me much more than it is. And now that's really bothering me. So I think that and I'm not saying that's your case at all. I have no idea what your case is. But I think that when we live in a society that tells us what we should be feeling all the time, when we don't feel it, that becomes a secondary problem. And sometimes the thing it's telling us we should be feeling is pain. And fuck, it's a gift if we're not feeling pain. It's a gift if we're able to integrate and move past an experience without it being a big deal. But if your society keeps telling you it should be a big deal, then the fact that it isn't becomes itself a big deal. And so you need to be very careful um, in terms of how you define the experience for, for her. You need to be very careful about what kind of expectations you have of what you think she should be or must be feeling, because in a way you're framing your ability to hear her and you're limiting her ability to heal potentially. I hope that makes sense. And I hope I don't sound really uncompassionate when I say that because I, I can hear in, in your voice that what you're trying to do, what you really want to do is help her and connect with her and be as supportive as you can. But it's understandable that you lose it sometimes because you're under incredible pressure and, and you must feel incredibly helpless that something very important to you and very valuable was damaged and taken from you and, and you have no way of of confronting the person who did it or and you don't know how to get it back. I understand that's got to be extremely painful. But I think it's it's so important that you don't limit her ability to heal by imposing your expectations on what she should be feeling. 
Uh, I know I haven't solved your problem, but I hope that just by talking about it for a while, uh, maybe it's uh, it's helpful in some ways. And uh, for anyone else who's dealing with similar situations, I, I also hope it's helpful. I'm going to end this now because I've been talking for a long time and I got to get back to writing. Um, but I'm going to play a song by Carsey Blanton, of course, which I'm going to be playing all the time. Uh, let's see. What am I going to play? I don't know. I'm going to play a song that she played for me when she visited Portland. Uh, it's called To Be Known. It's from Carsey's new record, which is called So Ferocious, which you can download from her website, carseyblanton.com. Pay what you will. Toss a 10 in the tip jar. Download the record. It's fantastic. Every song's fantastic. And there's some really good uh, videos that they put together as well. Uh, check out the video for the title track, So Ferocious. It features several young women kicking ass. The The theme of the, the record is about strong, assertive women, um, which seems appropriate. Uh, so anyway, this song is, is the quietest, I think, one of the quietest, most sort of contemplative songs on the record. She played it for me live, and I got to say, I remember. I remember perfectly sitting in my office in Portland. She's there with her guitar. She's playing that song, and I could barely keep my shit together. It's so fucking beautiful, so touching, so straight from the heart, which she does as well as anyone I've ever seen. So I hope you enjoy this. It's called To Be Known, and it's from So Ferocious. Go get you a copy. I'll catch you soon. Thanks for listening. Bye.
shuffle through it. How it breaks you open to you singing hallelujah. Never know the gravity of grace until it hits you like a stone. To be known.